Hello, it's Jack Cheetah here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Francisco Lopez, who has released a ton of work across the realms of experimental music and sound art. Francisco is currently based in Newport, Ireland. And he released a new album late last year called Conveyor Belts USA, which was made by putting a portable audio recorder inside checked-in baggage in airports across the US. And then what you're hearing on this record is the unedited, untransformed recordings of the baggage going through those unseen conveyor belts, which is amazing. It's such a good record. We talk about that in the intro but Francesco's work goes everywhere you've got extremes of duration such as one of his recent 24-hour albums you've got extremes of dynamics one of my favorite works by him is Presk 2 released online which is a compilation of very very quiet works that he did Uh, you've got various different explorations of fidelity working in reduced and degraded fidelities uh, as well as sparkling hi-fi he's done a lot of work in rainforests and countless different environments I mean Francisco is very much mapping out the extremes of sound across almost every vector it's beautiful to behold I mean you can dive in anywhere go over to Francisco's band camp I'll include a link in the show notes and yeah have fun uh so we start this discussion diving straight in i was actually in the middle of my preliminary chat just figuring out what we were going to talk about francisco mentioned an upcoming work centered on rainforests in thailand so we kind of dive straight in there's you know no hello at the start of this one it's a fabulous chat francisco has so many thoughts around sound and his approach to it and his perspective on it uh it's yeah such a pleasure to speak to him if you're enjoying the podcast generally you can support it by the way you can go over to coffee ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening where you can make a donation one-off or monthly any amount you please it goes into helping keep the podcast ticking Thank you so much. Uh, Or just, you know, tell someone about it. Give it one of those reviews. Uh, Thank you very much. Anyway, without any further delay, this is Francisco Lopez on Crucial Listening. The Rainforest in Thailand project, so that's a record, is it? It's a record that's due to be coming out soon? Yeah, I mean, it will come out. Um, I'm finishing, I'm in the last stages of of this project. Um, 
It's it's a project that started uh, two years ago, and uh, with uh, recordings in uh, uh, different national parks in Thailand. This was done in collaboration with the National Park Service uh, in in Thailand, and through the um, uh, instigation of an organization in in Bangkok called Bangkok eighteen ninety nine. It's an organization based in Bangkok and uh, Los Angeles, and then they do uh, well. They organize different you know uh, different activities, cultural activities of different types. Um, not specifically sound or music in in Bangkok. So I proposed this idea and uh, it was a far-fetched idea, but in, in the end it worked. And um, in short, um, you know, as you probably know, I've been working in rainforests uh, all over the world my entire life and um, also as a biologist. And um, they, they are a big part of, of my personal um, story as, as a composer, as, a, as an artist. And um, these, my surprise, after having visited and worked in many different um, rainforest environments, my surprise was Thailand, how rich, how incredibly rich and wild, how wild um, some places in Thailand are even today. And so that was fascinating. That was a very interesting project. It was very productive and is going to materialize in a number of different ways. I did some performances in Bangkok last year with the first version, a performance version of, of the uh, sound piece that I created from those recordings. And it will materialize hopefully soon in the form of a um, long duration album uh, in, the, in the range of several hours. Um, with um, a, a composition uh, created from, with those recordings with no transformation, with no uh, processing or anything of the recordings, but a lot of editing work and a lot of uh, what I would consider to, to be composition work from, from those recordings. So it's a big, big, big project for me and is in the in the last stages of, of the uh, mastering process right now. So that will be released on my Bandcamp site as well as a long duration a digital album, at least initially. A follow-up question on this then, obviously, as you say, you spent a lot of time recording in rainforests, mm -hmm. and I imagine every rainforest that you go into has its own intricacies based on where it's at, uh, the terrain, etc. But mm -hmm. is your general approach to spending time in those environments in terms of whether simply as you're inhabiting them or how you're recording them, has that changed? over the time that you've been working in those kind of environments? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, um, uh, the, the imp because the impact of, of the experience of those environments, the experience is multi, you know, multi, whatever you want to put after multi. It's because for me, the um, um, experience of listening in those environments, it's as important as the experience of, of recording. And, and those two experiences are different. I do not think of recording as a form of representation, as a form of gathering or keeping or capturing. These are common terms, common metaphors to refer to recording. I don't see recording as something that replaces or or that um, um, you know keeps uh, something that I get from listening. I think listening and recording provide very different things, complementary, but very different things. And the impact of both are, um, it's, it's, in my view, in my personal experience, is complementary. I spend a lot of time uh, listening and spending time experiencing those environments uh, for a number of reasons. And originally years ago, it happened while I was doing research in biology and spending, you know, extensive amounts of time in those environments. But, um, my goal in those places is to, um, 
is not to record. That is, it's, I'm happy that happens, but that's not the main goal. And um, like I said, it doesn't replace uh, the listening. I think recording creates something that is not possible with listening and vice versa. So I think for that reason, and uh, this, this makes for a very, very long conversation about uh, what recording and what sound is and what sound environments are. Um, but it, it, in short, I, I think that the uh, when your um, goal is not to represent, is not to simulate um, uh, an experience of reality, but is to access uh, layers of that reality, uh, aspects of that reality that are not accessible through listening and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Recording recording provides with uh, with something that we cannot do. I insist on this and, you know, I've been insisting on this, on this for many years. I think the main quality that recording machines have is that they do something we cannot do. They can perceive reality within their perceptive range, within their capabilities, without thinking. This is mm. something we cannot do. So non-cognitive machines like sound recorders um, uh, are, um, this is the, the, the main advantage, the main quality, the main power they have is that they don't think. Mm. Um, and this is this particularly relevant now in the present because we are losing that. Most machines will be cognitive machines. They're starting to be cognitive machines already and they will be cognitive in the near future. So at some point in history, we have we will have lost the, this stage of non-cognitive machines. Um, and uh, I think that will be a big loss. I think it's probably natural evolution in terms of technology and the interaction between humans and technology. But I think um, it is it is for me, it is crucial to understand the non-cognitive ability of these machines. A few of these points, I think, uh, tie in with another project that I wanted to talk to you about which is conveyor belts usa which Mm -hmm. is a record that came out right at the end of last year and that you recorded last year too which is centered on non-transformed unedited original recordings done with a portable audio recorder running inside checked in baggage going Mm -hmm. through conveyor belts uh, Mm -hmm. of baggage handling systems in the u.s which uh as a concept i felt almost like this childlike rush of like that's the question that you always ask when you're a kid going into airports, like, where the hell has my baggage been? And it felt like this kind of, on one level, tapped into that. And I felt some of that childlike excitement even listening to the record. But at the same time, I guess the first question I wanted to ask, there's several directions to go here. Mm-hmm. You put this on several of your records, the fact that there is a distortion on the audio which is uh, mm-hmm. like an aesthetic decision right uh, it's very pronounced particularly on like the last track i think is it uh, mm-hmm. los angeles uh and there are certain scenarios in which i know that that would be undesirable for certain uh people either working with sound or listening to it where it's like suddenly the the medium is announcing itself very brashly upon what you're listening to mm-hmm. uh i think it's a, a wonderful decision to make and it triggers so many thoughts in itself but can you talk about this aesthetic decision of having a distortion within mm-hmm. the material that you're presenting? Right. I mean, uh, two things. One is that um, 
distortion, as we uh, as we know, audio distortion. Um, it's part of the history of popular music uh, in the uh, mostly in the 20th century, but not exclusively. The entire history of rock and roll, and not only heavy metal, but uh, rock and roll in, in a wide sense, heavy metal in a wide sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but the entire history of rock and roll is based on the idea of making an aesthetic decision as to what distortion is or can do. Um, the electric, the history of the electric guitar, for example, in in terms of the aesthetic, in terms of the uh, contribution to music making and to generating new genres of music and new types of music, it's one one important component there is distortion. And uh, distortion turned into into an aesthetic in many in many different ways. So to me, it's absolutely it is no surprise that uh, to make decisions as to uh, voluntary, even forceful in- inclusion of distortion. And of course, there's the entire history of so-called noise, noise music, which is based mm. also, you know, to a large extent on the idea of distortion, not only, but distortion is, is crucial there as an aesthetic component that is uh, desirable, it's voluntary, it's forceful, it's uh, explicit, it's conscious. So all of those things are there. This is, this is one thing. So again, my point there is that not only for the the most extreme forms of use of distortion in music, but also for other um, uh, more mainstream today and popular uh, today forms of music, distortion is there present as a as an aesthetic decision. This uh-huh. is one one thing. The second thing that also it's uh, relevant for me and probably um, unknown for um, you know for a lot of people is that there's many different types of distortion. There's many different kinds of distortion. There's many different ways distortion appears in analog uh, media, in digital media. There's different limits for distortion, and there's the many different ways. Distortion is not just in the recordings in an in a uniform way. Sometimes distortion blurs the rest of the audio that is there or overpowers the rest of the audio. Sometimes distortion is a little layer on top of anything else that is there, um, still clearly audible. Sometimes distortion is occasional, punctual, and it it adds to the rest of the palette of sounds that you're, you're listening to. Sometimes distortion is in the background, sometimes it's in the foreground. Distortion is a whole world. And uh, mm-hmm. so making decisions as to how to use distortion and how much distortion to um, to allow there from a recording or from the work in the studio afterwards, it's, 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 a, it's a universe in, in itself. So when I say, and I've done this in, in this in a number of different pieces, not only in this case with conveyor belts, because there were some distortions that appear there because of the thumbs and the and the and the, you know the movements and the falling of the of the checked-in baggage through the handling systems. Um, it, but also in many other works that I've done where distortion was appeared in the process of the evolution of the sounds as I was working as in the studio with the sounds. You might decide that some distortion is undesirable from your um, subjective personal ex- uh, perspective, and you might decide that some distortion is really, really good in the context, in a musical sense, in a, in a, in a compositional sense, and uh, and that's my my take on this. So, what whatever distortion is there, both in this album and in other albums of mine, it was uh, very deliberate. It was very forceful. It was very clear decision that uh, it, to me. It was right, the right type of distortion at the right time, in the right proportion. So let's, let's put it that way. So again, distortion, as with silence, so-called silence, our elements, our, our universe, our fields of work, our fields of uh, material uh, and fields of, of possible work for uh, composition and for creating uh, work with sound. Fabulous. And also as well to address the concept of the record specifically, like mm-hmm. I say, it's 
such an exciting concept. It's really elegant as well. Uh, I feel like this is kind of self-evident, but why did you think it would be an interesting thing to do to leave your recorder on while checking in your baggage? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as it happens with many other um, examples, sometimes you experiment, sometimes you're curious to try something. You're not sure. Uh, in this case, I wasn't sure. I imagined some some of the things, and some of the things that happened are sort of similar to to some degree to what I more or less imagined. But certainly, I wasn't I wasn't expecting what I what I got and from from the recordings. Um, I was careful with a number of different, uh, you know, the recording level. I imagine it should be conservative with the expected, you know, m- mistreatment of the baggage that we, we <laughs> imagined as, as as it happens uh, always, right? Uh-huh. And so uh, also it's, it is also con- um, possible today, as more possible today than it had been like 10 years, 20 years ago, because recorders, portable recorders are so cheap, you know, compared to the, to the nobody will put a, a very valuable recording gear in the check-in baggage in the way I did it, because I had to put in in ways that will be not too muffled. So it had to be protected, but not excessively protected in order to record something. Mm-hmm. So anyway, in short... This is also possible at this at this time because it is it is you know possible to have cheap recorders. And anyway, it, I, I didn't expect the richness that I that I heard. And when I heard the first one, um, uh, then I was like totally totally into it, into like doing all the uh, have these uh, planned uh, flights in the U.S. in a short period of time. So there was it was a no brainer to to do it again and again to to see what what would happen in different airports. But um, I was really surprised because it's very rich. It sounds like a um, like a uh, uh, like a composed thing. It has like a structured uh, mm. sequence of uh, of combinations of sounds. The f- imaginary fields, the virtual fields of sound that you hear, and then the spaces you imagine, because we cannot see those spaces, is is astonishing. The the uh, uh, the diversity of those things and the, the way the changes happen is is like a. And in fact, it reminded me. Maybe this is this is my biased perception, but it reminded me of the way I, I like to work with sudden cuts and sounds and um, like extreme edits and extreme changes and sudden changes, temporal changes. So all of those things were there, sort of in a in a natural way happening. Uh, it is also this element of acousmatic, you know, true acousmatic environments. We don't we don't know those environments. We can't see those places. We cannot go into those places. So what happens here? It's something that combines your imagination with with the results of of uh, with this as a sonic sort of testimony of of an adventure or a trip or, or a nightmare that we cannot go through because we are not the baggage and and then so it is it has all of these different layers and but it, to me the the reason why I decided to create an album is because the the sonic results of that the uh, were interesting by themselves and. Uh, I wouldn't have done an album if I would have gotten um, just pure distortion with like a and and with the same uh, context. Mm. And in that in that sense, in that sense, I am not a sound artist as but what is most typically understood today. And I'm much more of a composer. Francisco, I'll include links to well, certainly to that record, and people should obviously keep abreast of what you're up to mm-hmm. in record announcements to find out about that. Uh, yeah, Bandcamp is, is the best now, yeah. Yeah, on your Bandcamp. Fantastic. Okay, I'll Correct. include links to that. Perfect. So Thank you. let's go to your important records now. So one question I like to ask at this point is how you think about the word important in relation to this list of three records. So was there a way that you understood that word in order to come up with the records that you did? 
Probably, I think it's probably a combination of of my personal, um, well, taste, uh, but also the impact those records had had in my personal understanding of music and um, uh, music making. Um, but also, I would say there is the assumption as well that those three records in in a wider context of these three records as representatives, as examples of movements or moments in history, in music history, the impact they probably had for millions of other people. So I would think of these um, examples as important in a, in a wider context than my personal experience. Okay, great. So let's go for your first important record. What one do you want to go for first? Hmm. Well, perhaps um, the soundtrack of Razorhead by uh, David Lynch and Alan Splett. Perfect. Okay, great. So maybe start by giving me a little introduction as to why this one's important to you. One of my um, strongest memories as a teenager um, was when I went to a movie theater, one of those art movie theaters that existed in the uh, 70s and um, throughout the 80s. Um, And I went to um, uh, one of these uh, movie theaters unaware of what I was going to watch. I went to see Eraserhead. For some reason, they were playing this on one of these art movie theaters. In Madrid, I was I was I was born and I lived in Madrid uh, when I was a teenager, and um, um, so I knew it was something weird that I could. But th- there was you know very little information I had about. That. I didn't know anything about David Lynch. I didn't know anything about the movie. I saw the poster and I thought that was weird uh, image of the poster and intriguing, and um, cannot even remember exactly what I knew, but I knew very little. So I went into the theater <clears throat> and I watched Race Ahead. And I was obviously blown away, you know, by a number of different reasons. And it was one of the weirdest uh, films I had ever, or probably the weirdest uh, at the time, film that I had seen. And uh, seeing this in a, in a movie theater was really, really weird. I remember that were, there were very few people in the theater that was common in, in those art cinemas at that time. And most of those people left the uh, the theater like uh, probably uh, uh, i guess outraged uh, like what what the heck is this you know what is this is nonsense and is absurd and is is uh, ugly and and i was absolutely fascinated i think that fascination uh in to a large extent was caused by the uh, the soundtrack um to me it was like having that uh, kind of um, story that kind of environment that race ahead portrays which to me is sort of like a it's one of the best expressions of the industrial um era the industrial culture um, that's what i mean industrial culture and as it was understood in the in the 70s late 70s early 80s even if if david lynch probably there's nothing explicit about it but i think it's clear in in the the way the atmosphere and the film and the story and the industrial environment is sort of like post-apocalyptic strange unexplained situation all those characters and um the, the soundtrack was was a, had a very strong impact the soundtrack was this drony world it created that world uh sound in that film uh, i think is is one a prime example of how uh, a world is created through sound how the impression not not just emotions not just punctuation on on the drama and the narrative of the film but much more the world where these things are happening where these characters leave that world is built upon to a large extent the sound that is always present and this mm. presence of sound i had never seen before in any film so that had 
a dramatic impact on on me on a on a very probably subconscious subconscious level. You know, it wasn't clear to me what was the story, what happened there, why. I uh, didn't have any of the context of uh, the work of uh, David Lynch or the intentions or or the culture of something like that. And I knew very little um, about industrial culture and and had other uh, very, very scant examples of other works with sound. I knew about Throwing Gristle and SPK and other bands at the time, but this was a, a very, a very strong. And, uh, and also because, you know, you don't see any how these things were made to me there were so many questions and you know, how these sound mm-hmm. environments have, have been created you don't you don't think of instruments you don't think of synthesizers or other tools that were common at the time for creating electronic music or, or equivalent this is of course before computers and in music and and uh to me, there were so many questions so intriguing and so fascinating that uh, to me that uh that was that was like a uh, uh, well, this is this is an amazing uh, uh, soundtrack uh, for an amazing for a crazy film, and uh, and that it, to me uh, probably the the main impact and the importance of this album and this creation of the soundtrack for a film is how many questions uh, that triggered in my mind musically, sonically. And when you talk about that being the impact, I mean you said that a lot of it is subconscious. But mm. I guess it's been a while since you've seen this film. I wonder if any of the more explicit aspects of the impact on you have become apparent over time. Are there things that you look back on now and say, ah, do you know what? A Razorhead was probably where I learned that that was in, you know, compelling or exciting. Well, you probably um, taught me the, the um, semi-unconscious lesson that you can actually try to have something that crazy in a you know in something that some people will go and watch or listen so mm. public um this is in the context of uh my personal history and the history of spain at the time because you know i was i, I grew up as i said i grew up in madrid madrid is a big city it was a big city but this is you know literally immediately post-franco um times in spain so there was very little information spain had been cut off the rest of uh, you know europe for like 40 years basically and uh, isolated uh, to a large extent culturally in many different ways so any little scrap of any little fragment of information or cultural you know products from uh, you know anywhere else in the world that was not mainstream that was not like the most typical things commercial things in the radio or tv was like like a a, a reviving uh, it was like a, a trigger for for so many so many things so i think this created uh, a layer, a base. Uh, not it was not the only thing, of course, but this one had a very strong impact. Probably because it was associated with the film. Probably because I realized, wow, there's a film. Somebody made a film like this. It's being shown in theaters, and uh, you can have this kind of very, very crazy, very um, non-commercial thing in a film, even if this minority. So it, it mm. probably showed me the lesson that, uh, well. You know, it's, it's good to, and at the time, I couldn't even dream of the idea that I could be, you know, doing uh, a concert or releasing an album or anything like that. But it taught me the, the lesson that, uh, well, no matter how crazy, you should go for the things that are attractive to you, that are exciting, that are, you know, mis- uh, um that look interesting uh, mm. to you, and that's that that contributed. It had a very strong contribution, I suppose, to uh, uh, my determination to proceed with whatever my ideas, my taste, my curiosity will will lead me to. So it, it had a very strong uh, contribution towards that. Uh huh. 
I've seen a Razorhead once a long mm-hmm. time ago, and this is a recurrent theme with Lynch's films, in that the, the f- fact that I watch them is kind of secondary to how they take residence in my head mm-hmm. and what I perceive them to be uh, in retrospect, because obviously just what what gets left in your mind is the, the weirdness, how unsettling it felt to inhabit that for a long time, mm-hmm. and this sense that my body's kind of warning against going back in and doing it again um mm-hmm. i wonder I think, how your I relationship think, has changed sorry go on. It, so in relation to that i think the main quality to me the main quality of david lynch there's a lot of um part of the work of david lynch that to me is not that interesting but i think the main quality there's a main quality for me in the work of david lynch that is present throughout his entire career even through films that don't seem to be so um obscure of course, there's always this dark element in all his films, but uh, this one element to me is that, hey, that w- which relates to what you just said, which I think uh, Lynch is capable of having a um, strong, um, almost psychoanalytic impact, uh, uh-huh. a psychological unconscious impact in in people in with details and with elements in the film that seem to be secondary, but they become primary in your memory of the film mm-hmm. and in your in your feeling about a film. And then so this the story is uh, there. There are many times secondary to to the uh, the main reason for or the main quality, I would say, the main interest of, of the film throughout his entire career. And I think that is present from Arrested Head to the that one with the monkey, the recent one. <laughs> this, this, <laughs> right, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't even remember the title, but I watched that one relatively, you know, a, a couple of years ago or something when it came out. And I was like, well, that's my David Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, with Eraserhead, have you seen it many times since? And have you felt your relationship with the film change? since that initial um, exposure it's, it's been a while that it's been actually years years i don't know how many years it's been a while this is last time i, I saw it uh, it will be that will be a, sort of an experiment to watch it uh, now and see how i feel about it i'm not sure about that um <laughs> i'm a little bit afraid because of the of you know what the way the place that it has in my memory and in in my appreciation uh but it's been a while i saw it a, a few times yes but it's been years that i haven't seen it uh i saw in a separate feature where you pick some important records this came up again and you said i think this was with dusted that this is one of those rare cases where you feel the film without the soundtrack would be so much less which i think gives a little insight maybe as to your general perception of how film soundtracks contribute to the world of the film so (laughs) is it very rare for you to find value in the soundtrack of cinema no, I think I mean I mean I've done even myself I've done and I'm you know have this reputation for for not being visual not working with visuals I've done work for uh, I've done occasionally um, soundtracks or something like soundtracks for different visual works including film including um, um, I did uh, probably the the most dedicated uh, work that I've done was for a documentary. Um, called Technocalypse on uh, technology and the apocalypse, religion and technology, um, transhumanism, basically, that I did in uh, the 90s with Frank Tice. He's a film director from Belgium, and he did this three-part documentary for television uh, called Technocalypse, and he did the soundtrack for that. So soundtracks, um, I, I love the idea of the soundtrack, and I think, uh, but I think whoever wants to uh, learn about the relevance of soundtracks and uh, relevance and the role of soundtracks and the, and the plays of a soundtrack in the world of cinema should read Michel Chion, the uh, the uh, writer 
um, who has the author who has written and published more about sound in cinema in in the most uh, elaborated, sophisticated, intelligent, uh, and profound ways. I think so. His his uh, his famous book Audio Vision is a good example. And by the way, he talks extensively about David Lynch work. So personally, what I think is uh, is clear in many cases how the soundtrack uh, not only contributes to the film or enhances the film or 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 supports the film, but really constructs uh, some essence in the film. I think that will be the case of uh, also of a very uh, well-known case, a repeated case of a composer who works systematically with a film director that most people will be familiar with, which is Nino Rota. Nino Rota did most of the soundtracks for the films of Fellini. And I think the universe, uh, again, the dreamy, Fantastic um, universe of Fellini is is based to a large extent on the on the work of Nino Rota. I think Nino Rota built that world of memories, that world of fantasies, that world of that erotic world, that fantasy world that uh, Fellini develops. Um, he, he creates that along with Fellini, and I think Fellini understood that when he worked systematically with Nino Rota throughout his entire career. And I think this also this is one thing. The other thing I would like to mention is that. I think there are some cases where one we should call what we're watching in a cinema a film track, not a soundtrack. Mm. I think there's there are cases where it's questionable what comes first. It's questionable what is has more relevance. And uh, I've been working on on this idea as well. And uh, the um, then I'm interested in this idea of creating. I mean, the world of music videos is based on that principle, although this is an entire. A different animal, but um, the principle that there is a song, and then we're going to build something visual that is interesting around that song. Mm. Um, something like that happens with some films, and I think the. Uh, um, but it's a matter of uh, subjective uh, assessment or or um, opinion. But I think uh, some films are more uh, um, a sound construction, and then the film and the story is a, a film track to the to the sound. Yeah, for sure. It feels like maybe with Lynch that there's an awareness of the primacy of the visual. And, you know, when we talk about the fact that a lot of the content of the film sticks in the head in that psychoanalytical fashion, I think Mm -hmm. a sound is a lot of that. And the fact that you're not able to explicitly haul up the sonic details that are having that effect on you is maybe how it has that amorphous presence in your head of like, why can't I stop thinking about this <laughs> this film, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, um, yeah, I think it would be interesting to um, sort of, and this is one of my, I would say, attempts, or I'm, I'm working in that in different in different ways in that direction to, and the idea that, uh, well, sound should be also, uh, could be also, uh, it is a driving force. Uh, when it comes to the combination of creating narrative, it will be uh, very interesting to, um, yeah, start a narrative, create a fiction, create a film but that starts with the sound, not with the images. And I'm not uh, talking about simply like a something like uh, putting images to, um, you know, something that just goes along with it. I'm talking about something more more sophisticated, building a story, building a narrative, uh, starting with the sound and starting with something that is not um, a narrative or building the sound um, narrative and then creating the images for that narrative or telling a story with sound and then creating the images for the sound. Then the f- there, will, there won't be a film director. There will be a sound director and then there will be a film soundtrack created by someone. Huh. Okay, so this is a project that you're working on presently? Yes. In a number of in a number of ways, it's not easy, and it's 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 a sort of a 
uh, it's a bit utopian because fighting the uh, not just the industry I would say the, the industry you know the big big film industry or even the experimental um, uh, video film um, world uh, the difficulty there is cultural and uh, more than than the, the conglomerate of the of the big industry and money the, the the cultural difficulty is how to break with the concept of the of what is a film director who directs mm-hmm. uh, there the, the film. And I have experience, a little experience here. Um, film, it's um, it has uh, the making of film culturally has um, a structure that is rem- reminiscent of uh, the military. Basically, the film director is the absolute, you know, top general there. Then there's like different status. The, the uh, photography director is like, you know, it's, a, it's like a captain or whatever you might think of but it's very very structured that way and it doesn't matter how much different people contribute to the film the film is the work of the director fighting against this structure or not fighting against but trying to say okay well let's let's think about it in a in a different way alternative version of this it's very difficult because it doesn't matter what you do and i have a personal experience in, in, in with this of a film that I worked with uh, that was created from the sound. And then the film director, whoever worked with the images, becomes the author. I am just right. a, co- a composer who did a soundtrack for that film, when in, in, in fact it was the reverse. So going against that cultural, um, very, very established um, idea, it's it's an utopian battle. But, you know, we can always like work on the different examples and, and, and show those examples. Francisco, let's go to your second important album. Uh, again, if you could give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you too. Well, uh, perhaps um, around the same time and completely unconnected, or maybe not completely, but uh, um, I mentioned as a, as a choice of an album, an important album, um, Horde by uh, the Nemonists. Horde is um, one of the early albums of uh, this conglomerate of uh, people, uh, Nemonists, the Nemonists, and um, also... Uh, later um, called or later using the name, some of them using the name Biota. And um, Nemonis and Biota is basically a conglomerate of people based in Colorado in the U.S. And where uh, what I find interesting about this this group of people is that, well, it's a conglomerate of um, some musicians and uh, visual artists. Uh, the, the, the work that they do for the album covers over the years was uh, part of the uh, uh, sort of the integrated concept and this is very common in the history of music of course and mm. in, in 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 pop music and rock and roll in in experimental music is very common what i find interesting about uh, nemonists and particularly this album is is a very good example of that is that they work uh, to a large extent by doing uh, improvisation um, sessions in studio and then working through long sessions this is also a common practice for a lot of musicians but their main aim is not to point in the direction of looking at the improvisation and and uh, bringing the ethos of improvisation that is uh, common in the world of improvised music, but 
improvisation as a generator of interesting materials. Um, mm. uh, and then they work with uh, lots of many hours of recordings, and then they do this second stage in the process of not just documenting. They don't record those sessions in order to document or improvise session sessions, but they do it in order to create something that I would say composing in the best possible imaginable sense of the term. They create this uh, very uh, interesting, obscure, and scrutable or inscrutable um, uh, worlds of sound from those materials having worked. So it is like a collective where there is generation of materials, interesting materials and combinations that are um, generated mostly with by means of instruments, but they end up sounding like really um, non-instrumental or weird instrumental world. Biota is a, an example of, I would say, I would call it like it's like pseudo music in the sense that in the sense that uh, not as a as a less uh, lesser category of music, but as a category uh, as a type of music practice that you feel that it sounds like music, but it's not really there. It's like music in the making, music not happening, or music happening in weird ways, unexpected ways, because of the way it has been first improvised, then worked out in the studio. Mm -hmm. This combination to me is particularly interesting because it points the direction of really looking at music making, not so much at the ethos of, of uh, music practice, which is my main critique of improvisation as an ethical project, not as a musical uh, project. I think there's too much, in my opinion, this is a very uh, personal take on this, uh, there's a, an excess of um, ethos in, the, in improvisation that sort of blurs, um, obscures the potential of improvisation. I think we all use improvisation, musicians and sound creators and composers. We all improvise to some degree at some stage. And uh, sometimes to a large extent, but that doesn't mean that we have to show the improvising or we have to show, we have to present or we have to defend or have to be um, be brave to show those things in public and in, in the life moment. I think those things are more ethical decisions than musical decisions. And uh, I respect those decisions, but I think in the, that take, but it's not, personally, I don't find it very enlightening and I don't think that contributes to the experience of music. So... Mnemonist and Horde as an album, I think, represents sort of a, a very interesting um, turnaround of, of this principle of improvisation and generation of materials and uh, in a very interesting um, way. So to me, that represents that um, original take on, on this. I want to dig into that, uh, your personal critique of improvisation a little bit, just to make mm -hmm. sure I'm following it, really. So... Mm -hmm. um, is it the fact that with improvisation, the the improvisation is granted this kind of centrality where everything's recorded in long takes? The the whole purpose of it is to center on the improvisation, uh, and that's at the uh, exclusion of you know many of the other ways in which improvisation may be wielded in the context of like other crafts. Or yeah, could you dig into that a little bit more for me? Am I on the right lines? Yeah, I think um, my, in my opinion, improvisation um, as a practice uh, puts too much um, relevance uh, in, in. It's too emphatic. It's too um, weighted on the uh, side of um, accepting what happens in the moment. 
almost to the point of a religious uh, semi or pseudo religious take on this which is basically mm. ethical it's a, that's pseudo religious most people will call ethical it's an ethical to me the project of improvisation as is understood the standard the the, uh, the most common understanding of of um, the the weight, the relevance the, of improvisation is based on an ethical idea, not on not on a musical idea. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's music being made. Yes, there are instruments. Yes, of course. But the, it, it it is there's this ethical component that is there and uh, that is attractive for the people who practice improvisation and for the people who like to um, uh, listeners or public audience of, of improvisation. This is happening in the moment, whatever happens here, and we have to accept it. This acceptance to me is pseudo-religious. Why should we do that? Uh, what is the principle behind that? Uh, I think is if you want to do it, of course you can you can do that, but why is that better than than um, anything else? Why does a higher higher uh, ground ethical ground because you are um there's the language of improvisation it's if you if you look at it if you if you read if you listen to what is being said about improvisation you will see that it's a language that uses this uh, these ideas that um you need to accept what happens in in the moment and that is part of the music the instant music making and uh, also they is very common to hear this um expression uh, taking risks and I don't understand that risk. What is the risk there? The risk, <laughs> right. the, the, the risk of what? The risk yeah. of, of something. If you say that, I mean, it's also, it's very revealing. If you accept the idea that you're taking risks means that there's something bad that might happen or has happened. What is that bad thing that happened that can happen because there's a risk of something happening? And I suppose the bad thing or the undesirable thing is that something you don't like, something you dislike, or something that you think is failed or is weak or is not. Um, and that is an, is an implicit acceptance of something that there's, there's wrong there. So right. if you, if you want to do it, I'm fine with that. I respect that. But I just don't like that um, sort of higher ethical ground um, tent that is there. I think it's it's, um, completely. Also, um, I can put this in a different way. Um, I do improvise a lot. I do it when I'm working on something and in, in many different ways. I improvise when I decide where to record, what to record. And when I have, you know, tons of hours of recordings or whatever, and I'm working with materials, I improvise all the time. I improvise what I'm doing with them. I improvise how I combine them or not. If I do something to them or not, I improvise a lot of things. I experiment constantly. But there's a difference between me doing that and me showing this to an audience in uh, expecting anyone to be interested in, in watching this process or, or being the spectator of this process. And there's mm-hmm. a difference here between the technical and uh, and the musical in the best sense of the term, meaning the sharing of a musical experience. I could technically show some of that if i if i wanted to do it but that is not gonna that's not gonna become the core of my uh you know what i do in a public situation to share with people so i can share the technical at a very basic level but that's not good sharing the technical and sharing the sharing with the with a uh, in public, um, the the moments where those things happen to me, it is not going to create a, a, a more interesting experience of, of anything. Um, so that ethos to me is, and uh, um, it's insubstantial. is um, is not really supported by any strong um, argument or thought, really. And uh, and another thing, uh, second thing or third thing that for me is very relevant is that 
There are many things that happen in in, uh, in improvisation that are always a repetition of a, a sort of re- improvisation generates many cliches in a, in a live situation for natural reasons. So it generates many cliches in the interaction between musicians, in the way musicians listen to each other and in, in the things that can happen. There are many things that cannot happen with improvisation life. It's impossible. There are things that have to do with coordinating musicians that cannot happen. They happen with a lucky accident, of course, sometimes, but they cannot happen. There's many things that, uh, like sudden changes in the music, in the collective music making, cannot happen because mm. there's nothing. There's many things that musically are banned from equalization, banned in the, uh, um, it, not in the sense that there's, there's anyone uh, stating that those things cannot happen is that they can naturally not happen it's impossible and uh, um, and on the along the, uh, in that respect improvisation tends to uh, produce um very repetitive music music repetitive in the worst sense of the term music that is becomes in my opinion boring because you know what's going to happen and it's a paradox it's a paradox to what is supposed to be very free and very open ends up producing very predictable results. Improvisation as a musical practice in, in with instruments as we know it, as we understand it today in the present, in my opinion, produce, produces very predictable results. And in many cases, that to me is boring. So I have very little interest precisely because of that. And uh, so I don't want to be ethically happy and uh, musically bored. <laughs> so with uh, mnemonics and horde i mean i feel like that we've kind of uh addressed this in a roundabout way already mm. but what was the impact on you in terms of hearing this record like how did that impact manifest for you well it, it uh, again uh, i placed this uh, selection of albums in a wider context and then i would say mnemonists at the time and was one of the uh, um collectives of uh, it it showed me again something that i was uh, sort of striving or, or or imagining possible in my personal future that eventually didn't happen which was collaborating with other artists in such a having such a collective of artists um i think not all the decisions of course are made by uh, all the people who contribute to the generation of sonic materials in in Nemonis or, or in biota but i think the uh, the uh, um it was very interesting to see how a collective of people could could generate something uh, a product like that that was so solid so strong so such a very strong statement so it's not a lot of uh, people doing crazy things and going all over the place. I think they're very focused on the direction of what they construct and what happens in the end out of a million uh, possibilities, I imagine. And to me, that was a very good lesson on, on being focused on something that has an atmosphere, that has a very clear aesthetic. Um, um, it's very solid uh, aesthetically. And mm-hmm. that, for me, that was very, very important, as it was in the work of or very different uh, collectives at the time uh, around the same time this is early 80s uh like white house for example white house um the band from uh, the infamous band from england um <laughs> was also uh very influential and it was also for for uh, with completely different music or completely different noise uh, work uh, it was very influential in in that sense it was also very very solid very very um, solid and uh, some people would say very monochromatic or very uh, repetitive in in the aesthetic um but so solid and so different to any mm-hmm. other music for me if the difference um uh, the, being different at a certain time and not systematically but at uh, certain times and being different in interesting ways is always uh, have 
had a very strong impact and it's it's a it's a good good quality so both in different ways both mnemonists and white house for example were very different to uh, most of the music of the time most of the experimental music of the time and to me that was um, a very you know it's a solid call for my attention yeah for sure and as you say there's a, a a real value to when this music emerged so do you still listen to horde um nemists generally and if so you know has your relationship with this kind of music changed at all well i do listen to the uh, this album i mean I, I don't again i don't remember when was the last time i listened to this this album but i do listen to the music of the nemonists and biota as well and when they're uh, in fact i i created an exhibition um in 2020 in infamous 2020 i created an exhibition of, of uh, audio art and experimental music for um in uh, madrid in spain for the national museum of contemporary art it was a very very big project and uh, one of the artists i invited uh, more than 800 artists from all over the world and one of them or one, in this case a band was biota was the uh, the, um, the people uh, who today still continue in the, the work of of the nemonists now they take they've taken a lot of different directions and they tend to be very folky and that's to me is less interesting but still i respect their work and i respect that they sort of created their own terrain um um creating your own terrain uh of course not out of the blue not out of nowhere we all have connections with the cultural you know uh, milieu and, and our moment in history but i think there's a number of a few examples of 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 bands or artists who create or a little bit, or or to a large extent, their own territory or their own direction. Like, and I think Nemonis Biota is one of them. I mentioned White House. The Residents are another historical example of that. You know, uh -huh. the Residents also created their own sort of music. You know, in a, in a way, and uh, again, not out of the blue, but they have consistently, solidly created their own their own world. And I, that's something I appreciate. So I do listen. You know, every once in a while, they're part of my listening um, for many years. Um, uh, experience the the work of uh, Nemoni Sambayora, yes. Francisco, we got one more important record. Uh, again, if you could give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you. Well, this my last choice of, of important album was um, Chaos Fear by uh, Meshuga. Um, Meshuga is a, is a, um, a metal band from Sweden and um, they became very popular. I think that was one of the, the big the big, big, big uh, metal bands, and uh, uh, I think there is a there's again in this case there's a there's one of the reasons why I mentioned this album and selected this is because of the uh, creation of that own territory within the um, world of metal. I think Meshuga uh, created their own uh, territory that now is imitated worldwide by many different uh, bands and uh, even creating a, a, a genre, this degent or gent or whatever <laughs> they call it. Yeah. Um, I think that was basically uh, the, the, uh, the instigated and created um, the ground for that. It was created by Meshuga. And uh, the first time I heard Meshuga, and um, um, 
I wouldn't say I wouldn't consider myself to be a metalhead. I'm not, but uh, I let me put it this way: when I hear quality, I always say, "Well, this is good." And of course, <laughs> this is this is absolutely subjective. Of course, this is my personal opinion. Um, but I think um, the uh, there's a few uh, examples of of um, metal throughout the years uh, that I find particularly interesting. So most metal bands have, will have very little interest, but occasionally I find something. And the first time I heard uh, uh, Meshuga, I, I I had the impression this is different. This is different, and this is different for a number of different reasons. They're, of course, they're incredible musicians, but there's a lot of incredible musicians in the world of metal, of metal, heavy metal, and um, it was not just that. And it is not just that. I think what metal fans appreciate in Meshuga, I think they appreciate that they created this this very very solid personal world that includes um, virtuosistic uh, playing of the instruments, the guitars, the drums, uh, and but also a very very solid original style. Some people would say that I think contributed to and uh, and the contribution to let's say the history of metal. It's very very significant. Chaos Fear as an album, I think is it's it's uh, the I think the first. Uh, I'm not completely sure about this, but in my perception, is the first album from, by Meshuka that is that solid. Yeah. Uh, other albums after Chaos Fear uh, try to do that, like Nothing, for example, the album Nothing, and other albums, or Coloss. Coloss is also an album that I really like. And um, so I would say, yeah, I like most of the albums of Meshuga after Chaos Fear, Chaos Fear, and even if I liked their work before, and I knew Meshuga before Chaos Fear. But with Chaos Fear, I felt, wow, this is like now, this is like an album that is as solid. The album itself is the work and not individual songs or individual parts of the songs. This is really a very, very solid album in itself it retained the production of the album is is fantastic and uh, it, it generated the uh, darkest and deeper atmosphere that Meshuga can can create and that, that they have used ever after in mm. in to different degrees so i think chaos fear, chaos fear for me it has that essence in raw form and uh, it has this solid solid uh, base of of uh, having the, the album split into songs is sort of secondary to the album this is my perception of chaos fear yeah what do you think it is about so so you mentioned the fact that there are metal bands that have generated their own sound sound and you know jut out from other bands working within that genre full disclosure Meshuggah is like the most important band in my life I did uh, uh, my own three important albums and I picked nothing with the 2002 uh-huh. version as my important one of my important picks mm-hmm. uh, so I have my own thoughts on this but what is it about the world that they've generated that you find compelling um, okay, there's the all of the prototypical elements of metal. Um, they twisted them. They twisted mm. uh, uh, percussion. The the I mean the drums. The the, the way they uh, um, they they work with the uh, with the drums and the uh, rhythmic interaction between between drums and and the rhythmic part of the guitars. The, the uh, um, I think that is incredibly complex and interesting. It's like syncopated uh, um, in ways that are unexpected in, in metal. Mm. Um, the, uh, so- the guitar solos, the guitar solos are like this almost experimental music. It's like really weird um, harmonies and uh, um, the uh, the harmonic direction of the guitar solos goes in a completely different direction than most of the previous heavy metal um, solos. So they, mm. they contribute in ways that are um, original, unexpected, and still it works. It works. It's not something that is not disconnected. So the complexity of the interaction between the different musicians while maintaining such a solid 
of sound and such a solid, uh, you know, metal presence of uh, all together is just absolutely impressive. It's very original and uh, in or, or it was very original at the time um, in the context of of, of metal. So it's, I don't think of Meshuga as a band that has uh, its own sound. Many bands had have their own sound. They're original in their own sound as band, and you can recognize them. It's, it's more than that. To me, Meshuga sort of contributed a new strand, a new layer, a new direction, a new possibility within the idea of metal. And that's a very difficult thing to do, I think, within within the world of metal. Metal works in, in all directions by, by excess. You know, we go to the excess of distortion, with the excess of volume, to the excess of uh, putting the, all the instruments, the mass of sound coming from all the instruments to the limits. Uh, we work with excess of, of virtuosistic um, speed or sometimes. And uh, so there's a lot of excess that. And in that context, it's difficult to imagine uh, what can we do here that will move this in, a, in an interest in appealing a uh, new direction. And the appeal of Meshuga was there from the beginning. So uh, Meshuga is very popular, I think, because uh, it is the, per- the perception of a lot of uh, you know people into metal that they realize this is it's good. It's, it sounds good. It's, it's good and it's different. So I think that mm-hmm. contribution is is there for reasons that have to do with musical complexity, and and uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, with with the uh, uh, maintaining uh, a very very solid sound for uh, the concept of of what is uh, to do metal music. One thing for me that really juts out with them is that they were one of the first bands, maybe the first band I heard, where virtuosity and complexity wasn't synonymous with like speed or mm-hmm. running up and down the fretboards. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the riffs, I think, on Chaosphere are minimal in a way that they never return to again. Just a single palm muted chug, like on uh, the mouth licking what you've bled in the mm-hmm. verse, just to have yeah. something that reduced they never really returned to. So I was kind of surprised to hear you say, for example, that you, you know, really connect with Colos because I've said this to a lot of friends where I kind of perceive their most interesting period to run up until about 2005. Mm-hmm. And then they start to almost express this desire to be a metal band again mm. and do something that sounds more almost groovy and kind of funky and something that resembles music mm. more so. So I don't know whether you had any opinions on that it sounds like maybe your opinion diverges so what do you think about bleed i i enjoy bleed as a song and it's constructed really nicely but it feels to me like a metal song in a way that chaosphere and nothing just don't nothing for me was interesting because it's the sound of a band trying to grapple with this tuning and guitars that almost protested against being tuned like that which was so unmetal because metal feels like it's so much about mastery and uh, that kind of dynamic and Bleed expresses that and I think it's a really well constructed piece but Obzen is maybe my least favourite Meshuggah album of the right. world I probably agree I probably agree with you I think but but on the other hand I don't know how, how long you could sustain such a direction uh, <laughs> such an odd, odd direction so if you do Chaos Fear 2 or, or something like it uh, how, how long we will sustain that that's that's a more of a theoretical question yeah but you, you we, we might agree on that but I don't know how else because you know maybe maybe that's 
how far you can go with this new new idea and within the context of metal and somebody else has to come uh, maybe Meshuga cannot do a second you know invention or a second step in the, the invention of different directions or or something like it that's mm. that's that's another it's a different question yeah of course you know as it happens also in all forms of popular music what most of the people want is a repetition of the previous albums to some degree so that is uh that stifles you know like uh, creation and for a lot of different artists and and maybe that is the case here too but you know it's like if you look at you know i, I don't know acdc you know what can you expect from acdc after you know <laughs> more acdc and that's what people yeah. want more acdc so where maybe that's that's those are the limits of the invention yeah and there's something lovely about the fact that they did catch 33 which literally has a snake eating its own tail Right. and then progress to something slightly different so maybe they even knew they'd run out of road um i was gonna say with chaos Beard, do you as you say it's kind of like a solid block of material but do you have a favorite track not really not i don't remember right now i haven't listened to the album in a while but i don't remember a specific i, I think what i do remember as opposed to other meshuga albums from chaos fear is that it, it that's it was that thing it was like i said before it's like any track randomly you could play the shuffle in the cd player when we were playing those things on on cd and uh and and it will be the same album anyway and uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't uh it will work in any direction in terms mm. of the track so i think it is again it is the album itself as a solid piece that really has that that uh you know presence and that solidity and that uh you know novelty have you seen them live uh yes once sorry <laughs> I, was, I was thinking i was thinking of uh of uh a nepal death for some reason now <laughs> ah right okay how was uh yeah when was that Good. how was it yeah uh Meshuga, i think it was uh let me think 20 uh, sorry 2000 uh probably 2005 2006 i think only wow. once i saw them live yeah i think it was around that time yeah yeah well i, I tell you what was my uh overwhelming impression is that of course they were good live and all that clearly but uh i, I prefer to listen to them on on record it was uh so loud that you couldn't actually hear the uh oh right <laughs> <laughs> but i guess that's a common thing you know it's very difficult to convey something like that uh i think convincingly in a in a in a live show you know that in a so I guess most or many live shows of metal bands are so loud that you cannot actually hear the the music or the what you will hear when you listen to the records. Mm. So it is exceptional when you have good sound at that level, at that volume, at that you know presence. So the one that I saw that was in in Madrid actually, I wouldn't say the sound was bad. The sound engineers were not doing a good job. I think it was a combination of like factors that are common to many different venues. You know, is the venue combined with the sound system and etc. And of course, it sounds as loud. As you as you as you can get as you can take but that's not enough you know that's not convincing enough so to me the experience was not that great i could see well they they as good life as they could be in the record but listening to this is not going to be a, like listening of experience of a record so it was not a good a good experience in that sense final question on Ms. sugar unless you had anything else but what kind of impact did this have on you like why is this now an important record that you know in 2023 when someone mentions it this one still comes to mind what's the impact been on you well i think the um 
you never know where the influence or something like this might show up in in your work when uh, when apparently so different. And uh, of course, I have done. Uh, some people might be aware of this. I've done a few works uh, with uh, based on on metal music and uh, sort of like my take on on. Um, recombining, I would say, I don't like the term, the term plantophonics. I think it's a misleading term, but I would say recombining, re, re, uh, yeah, recombining, uh, you know, metal music as, as it can be done with other types of music. And I've done a few of those. I did an album that was just crazy, uh, mashup combination, recombination of many different metal bands. So I have an interest in that kind of sound. I have an interest in that kind of power, that kind of uh, noise uh, um, component and in certain ways, not just, you know, raw blast uh, volume. Uh, but so it is, in, 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 to some extent, it is part of my aesthetic. And I've done a lot of work that is very noisy and very dense, in, in, uh, even if not rhythmic like that. Mm-hmm. So the contribution of, of Meshuga to that is to to show uh, me and to to uh, contribute to to that uh, pool of memories and that pool of, of taste building materials that... Um, generate that impression of uh, depth with the sound, complexity um, and richness. Uh, they're good at also combining things with a lot of density. And that is there's a feature of my work as well. In general, I like complexity and I like density, but with clear elements there present and mm-hmm. with, with clarity in, in, in density. And I think Meshuga contribute, it was, it's one more contribution to that perception. In, in I think um, growing up as a composer or as an audio artist, or somebody who is interested to work with sound, growing up uh, and so in sophistication in what you do um, de- depends on a number of uh, listening experiences uh, with a lot of variety in those experiences in many different ways. And I think Meshuga has contributed to uh, my um constitutions or reconstitution as a as a, a composer as a as a somebody interested in music in a very very wide sense Francisco, one more question I have for you is about how you tend to listen to music or how music comes into your life. So do you have preferred places to go to buy music or acquire music? Uh, do you have preferred formats? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me a bit about that. Right. Well, my experience for many years now has been, um, as a, a lot of people know, it's been, um, I get my music through direct change uh, with other artists over the years i've changed and i keep changing music directly with um, artists and uh, small labels in a, num- in a number of of course before digital um editions uh, in physical form and still today in physical form of course um for many many years with literally thousands of artists all over the world so that is the source of my music, um, the main one. And um, there is so much music that I've changed. And because I also change with labels, 
I also get to change um, and receive music that are by artists that I don't know about or by new people and new younger artists and new artists uh, on a regular basis for decades now. And um, that is, I would say, the main the main way. With the uh, um, arisal of uh, present-day uh, digital self-releasing uh, through different platforms online, and predominantly Bandcamp, of course, uh, today, um, there's you can also get to know the music of so many different people um, just by you know moving around, exploring, navigating that uh, universe. And I, and I do that on a regular basis. When, again, when I created that exhibition I was mentioning before in 2020 in Madrid, I set up a task for myself to include in that exhibition artists that I've never heard about before, and a good proportion, probably around a third of the artists in that exhibition were people I didn't know about before um, starting to work in the exhibition, even if I've exchanged with thousands of artists for many years. And I did. And I did discover uh, through, you know, online um, um, listening, through streaming in many different platforms and through advice from different people, many, many artists. So my interest in listening, one of the uh, um, relevant things for me when listening, um, I don't care about formats. Uh, I'm not a, a nostalgic person. I don't care about, and I don't think uh, any format, any physical format is better than, and certainly vinyl, for example, is not better than, than digital formats, that's for sure. Um, so I'm not a fetishist or anything like that when it comes uh -huh. to formats. I don't care. Um, to me, formats are relevant only to the extent that will entice people to listen. So if anyone is enticed to listen, is 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 encouraged to listen because you have received a vinyl record, um, so be it. So that's very welcome in that sense, but only to the extent that the format will trigger the interest in listening in people. So whatever format does that, in whatever way, to me, that's the relevance of the format and nothing else. And um, so I received a lot of different uh, physical records, uh, vinyls, cassettes, lots of them today, um, CDs, etc., as well as loads of, of course, uh, streaming uh, the links to different uh, digital albums, etc. And so I do all kinds of formats in that sense, and um, I am very interested in exploring new artists and discovering new things. And uh, I am happy to to say I'm one of those people who think that. The uh, overwhelming amount of uh, material that is created today is is a um, is a happy consequence of the right to create uh, that many more people have today than 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 as it was in the past than years ago, and we have to accept that the price we pay for the right of anyone to create is to have this entire universe avalanche of, of an impossible to cope with amount of creation. That is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. That is a consequence of the right to create for a lot of people. So I don't, I don't think that is, it's bad that there's so much stuff. And of course, most of it, I might not be interested, but who's to say that people don't have the right to do it. Uh-huh. And in all that abundance, you picked free, awesome records for us to talk about francisco and it's been wicked to talk through these records and as well your new projects like i say links will go in the show notes so that people can check those out um thank you so much thank you so much for your energy and time as always francisco thank you jack thank you for the interest and thank you for having me for your podcast and to everyone listening and see you next time goodbye bye bye